Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Speaking of Resilience podcast. I'm Jim Lively with the Groundwork Center for Resilient Communities. Michigan's Upper Peninsula is a place full of bear, moose, and wolves, and a special place that we like to think of for hunting and fishing. But on today's episode of Speaking of Resilience, we're going to dive into the Upper Peninsula's unique energy issues. Our guest will be Dr. Rochelle Winkler of Michigan Technological University. Dr. Winkler is a sociologist and demographer who looks at how rural communities are managing their energy needs and the rural renewable energy transition. Dr. Winkler and I have worked together the past few years on several issues related to the UP, including following the governor's, Governor Whitmer's UP Energy Task Force. And together we helped organize a UP Clean Energy Conference series. We are also partners in a project called the Michigan Community and Anishinaabe Renewable Energy Sovereignty Project, which is fascinating and you'll hear more about. Dr. Winkler is a, has a great deal of information and knowledge about the Upper Peninsula and energy issues and the people that live there. And I really look forward to today's episode. Dr. Winkler, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, hi, Jim. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk with you more about some of the energy issues affecting the UP. That's great. I'm really excited about this conversation. I happen to have a a real soft spot for the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I have family from there. Um, I've been visiting there my whole life. So it's it's always been fun for me to, to visit the UP and to understand more about the Upper Peninsula and the issues there. And you're a demographer and a sociologist that studies, has actually done a lot of study of the, um, the, the communities in the Upper Peninsula, which is really fascinating to me. So I'm hoping that you can kind of paint a picture for us at the top of this discussion about what, what some of the history and the cultural issues facing a place as remote as the Upper Peninsula, where, you know, a lot of people think of the UP as almost an empty empty landscape full of wolves and bears and moose, which are there, um, but there's also people. And I'm hoping you can not only tell us like about the people, but a little bit about the history of industry and how people use energy in the Upper Peninsula. So look, look for, your, uh, for your history there. Sure. And, you know, like you said, we do really um, celebrate the natural resources um, and the environment um, here in the UP. It's part of what we love about living here. Um, But the Upper Peninsula's human history goes back millennia as well. Um, So at the time of European occupation, the area was primarily inhabited by Anishinaabe and Potawatomi people who remain today and who are associated with several tribes across the region, including uh, the Sioux Tribe of Chippewa Indians, the Keweenaw Bay Indian Community, Lakvia Desert Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians, and the the Bay Mills Chippewa Indian Community, and the Hanneville Indian Community. So um, several tribal nations still inhabiting this area. And the Europeans, when they settled here, were first attracted to the region for trapping and trade, but few settled in the Upper Peninsula permanently until 
they discovered copper and iron in the mid 1800s. So by about 1900, copper and iron mining were in full swing and populations were really growing across the Upper Peninsula, um, but especially in Houghton and Marquette counties where a lot of that early mining was concentrated um, in Houghton County in particular. Um, so people and industry moved to the region for mining, um, and many of these people were immigrants from Finland and Cornwall coming initially to work in the mines, um, and many Irish and German and Italians and other Southern Europeans also came. Um, by 1910 and 1910, Houghton County was the fourth most populous county in Michigan. Wow. Um, and this is the time period when a lot of people talk about Calumet, which was the most populous city in Houghton County, uh, as being a place where um, was being considered for being the capital of Michigan, state capital. That's actually not true. That, that never happened. But it's a uh, part of the folklore that people still talk about um, all the time up here. Um, but Calumet and, and the whole area really was a really booming um, city. Um, it was a very urban area. I know today people think of um, the UP as, as all being very rural, but um, especially at that time period, these were some of the most urban places in this country. Um, and this, about 1910, was the height of the mining boom, um, and the population in Houghton County peaked in 1910 at almost 90,000 people. Marquette County at the same time in 1910 ranked 15th in population for Michigan counties at almost 50,000 people. Um, over the last 100 years, that, that is flipped, whereas Marquette County now is the most populous county in the UP um, because the population in Houghton County in particular declined dramatically um, after 1910 and for the next several decades as um, employment in the mines declined. So this time period in the early 20th century was when most of the energy infrastructure in the UP was first built and it was designed to serve the mines and the rapidly growing cities that were near them, but especially the mines. And mining is an extraordinarily energy intensive industry, both then and now. So mining and energy development went together throughout the 20th century in the UP. Of course, mines don't last forever. And as the technology advanced and reduced the labor that was required and markets changed um, and the easiest ore to access ran out, uh, the mines employed fewer and fewer people across the UP um, and populations started to decline um, by the 19-teens and really saw a lot of out-migration that continued for the next several decades. Um, so population declined, especially in Houghton County. In Houghton County, it declined by almost two-thirds from its peak in 1910 to just over 30,000 people by 1970. And today, it's about 35,000 people in Houghton County. So the population generally stagnated or declined across the UP over the last 100 years with Marquette area being somewhat of an exception. And the Marquette area grew from the 19, from about 1950 to about 1980, associated with continued and expanded iron mining and also the K.I. Sawyer Air Force Base. Um, and the Marquette population has continued to be fairly stable um, or grow slightly in recent years. 
So today, the total population of the entire UP is about 300,000 people living in about 130,000 households. Um, while we've seen a little bit of population growth over the last 20 years in Marquette County and in Houghton County, a little bit or stability at least, the remaining counties have continued to see population decline. So some of the more urban areas have seen a little bit of growth, um, but the, the most rural areas of the UP have actually seen more decline. Um, the number of housing units, um, however, um, and the associated residential energy demand has increased somewhat for two reasons. Um, first, people are living in smaller households and so that means it's because more people are living alone or in smaller families than they used to be. Um, so more housing units are needed. Um, and that's also associated with population aging and people living in empty nest households without children or elderly people, often widowed, living alone. Population aging is a really serious issue facing the UP. Um, the other reason is second homes or recreational housing or camps, we often call them in Michigan. Um, across the UP, about 22% of housing units are these kind of second homes or camps. And in some counties, especially Keweenaw and Mackinac County, um, more than half of the housing units are such second homes. So what all that means for the current energy infrastructure and demand that we see is that first, um, the energy infrastructure and the utilities that we have were really designed to serve the mines. And this basic structure generally remains today, despite the fact that mining operations have declined substantially. And mining remains a heavy energy user in the UP and has great influence over energy-related decisions and rate structures. Um, one of the outcomes of this is that industrial electric rates are relatively cheap in the UP, especially on the Western side. The second thing I would say that comes out of this is the housing infrastructure was also primarily built decades ago. And due to decades of population loss or stagnation, there was for a long time an overabundance of housing and housing values were really low. So there was little reason nor the money available to invest in improvements. So we're left with an old housing stock that's had relatively little upkeep and is today extraordinarily inefficient. Mm -hmm. So there are areas of the UP, especially on the Western side, where more than half of all the housing units were built before 1950. Uh, the third thing that I would say we're left with is the current population is small um, and it's clustered in some of the, these more urban areas for the most part across the region. Um, there are only about 300,000 people, as I said before, but the geographic area is immense. And so this means that the UP has some of the lowest population density in this country outside of Alaska. Second homes or camps increase the number of housing units, but these are especially tend to be located in the most rural areas like along Lakeshore or hunting camps. And so all of that means that the energy infrastructure has to be spread out over huge geographic areas to serve only a relatively small demand. And economically, that's really inefficient. And it's one of the reasons that electric rates are really high, near the highest in the country in some parts of the UP for residents. 
it also is one of the reasons why utilities haven't always wanted to serve this area. So natural gas service is limited and electric service is provided by 19 different utility companies, including a couple of investor owned, but a several municipal electric entities and rural electric co-ops. So the utility situation is, you know, a lot of small utilities serving a big area. And then another thing that it's left us with is these decades of general economic decline and population loss led to a population that's higher poverty and more low income residents in comparison to downstate Michigan. So there are a lot of people struggling to pay energy bills who live in old, inefficient housing where cheaper natural gas is not available. So they have to rely on electricity for heat. And all in a climate with extreme winters. And on top of all of that, they pay some of the highest electricity rates in the country. That's a bad combination. And it really limits people's ability to make ends meet. But I think it also means a great deal of opportunity on the flip side um, to improve the situation, both for people and for the climate. So we could reduce consumption and shift resources to highly efficient, renewably generated electric heating by making improvements to people's homes and at the same time, increasing people's quality of life and reducing costs. So I like to look for some of that opportunity and some of those pretty immense challenges that we're facing. Um, and then finally, I'll just mention that this history leads us with um, treaties that were signed between tribal nations and the US government that forced indigenous populations onto smaller reservation areas and specific parts of the UP where today tribal members continue to self-govern. Um, some of these tribes are working to take more control of their own energy generation and, and demand and work with that. Um, but they are limited um, by some of these utility monopoly service areas and in some cases by a lack of human capital resources and also funding resources. Well, so that, that was a lot. I'm sorry. That is a lot, but now, I, now we can appreciate why you're a professor in sociology and demography. Like that is quite the um, great snapshot of what's going on in the Upper Peninsula. And the, I think the image of the, the stoic youper that is um, enduring difficult winters and some difficult circumstances is maybe not completely wrong. I mean, people are living in, you know, you, you laid it out, living in some substandard housing, difficult economic surface um, situation, high, higher utility rates, energy rates. It's not an easy place to live. Um, it's also a beautiful place to live. There's plenty of um, upsides to the Upper Peninsula. One of the things that you said that, that struck me is the, you know, I think it's 3% of Michigan's population that lives in the Upper Peninsula. And yet I believe it's more than a third of the geography of the state. So we are talking about a, a very rural, remote um, piece of, of geography. And yet we downstaters, I think, lose, lose track of really how remote that is and, and the challenges that provides for, for energy. Um, you, you mentioned the utilities, and I just th thought I'd go back to that again for a second, that there's 19 utilities serving the Upper Peninsula, and none of, so DTE and Consumers Energy are not at all in the Upper Peninsula, is that correct? That's correct. No, they're not here at all. No, our biggest utilities in the UP are um, UPCO, the Upper Peninsula 
um, Power Company. I guess I'm not sure I got the acronym totally right there. Um, and then the uh, Cloverland Cooperative. Um, so the UPCO services a lot of the western side of the UP and Cloverland services a lot of the eastern side of the UP. But then there are several um, very small municipal utilities. Um, so several of the cities have their own utilities and several of the, even the villages, some of the small villages do. And then there are rural electric cooperatives as well that service um, quite a bit of territory across the region. Um, there are also a couple of investor owned um, that have some pockets on the west side that, that come out of a, a longer history um, with Wisconsin power. Um, but today, um, are uh, a Michigan-based investor-owned utility. So that's that's an important part of the story is understanding the utility structure. Um, but to kind of shift us, because another part of the energy story that, um, and I think this is when, when we first met, was related to heating fuel and propane. And, you know, one of the key issues that has put UP in the, in the state's um, you know, in the limelight a little bit has been the line five pipeline because it does start just west of the upper peninsula travels all the way through the up and then crosses into the lower peninsula just west of the mackinac bridge so in the up as we have learned does get much of its propane from the line five pipeline so as a result of that in 2019 governor whitmer created a task force a up upper peninsula energy task force to specifically study the propane question. How reliant is the UP on the Line 5 pipeline and what are the alternatives for the UP to heat itself, to, to, to deliver propane? And then more broadly, um, this task force was, was asked to look more broadly at the opportunities for other energy issues such as electrical demand. So I, um, I saw that was a huge, opportunity, I think, for the Upper Peninsula to have the governor appoint this task force and, and put a real focus on the UP's energy needs and, and the crisis or, or potential crisis that could emerge um, around propane. A lot of information there. I know you were the first, I believe, the first presenter to the UP Energy Task Force, if I'm not mistaken. And I think One of them, can, at least. Okay, you may have made this a similar um, kind of maybe a longer presentation to what you started here this morning. But could you talk a little bit about the, um, the propane first part of this task force and the, rec the report and the, the findings that we learned about the propane needs for the Upper Peninsula and how they're related to, to Line 5 and just to how people are heating themselves in the Upper Peninsula? Um, yes. Yeah, so I, I agree with you that I think this task force was a really great opportunity um, for the UP, for people across the UP to come together and start to talk about energy issues and to really create the space to do that. Um, and, you know, the propane issue was a big driver of that, but also, um, you know, we were facing a lot of other energy and, and crisis sort of energy issues across the UP related to um, electric rates, um, related to closures of power plants, related to how we're gonna, you know, really needing to develop some new um, electric infrastructure and how best to do that. And so I think all of those reasons um, made this task force um, really imperative and, and really, um, I was grateful for the, for the opportunity to get people together to do this. 
So Governor Whitmer created the task force in June of 2019, and she appointed 19 members, um, I believe 13 of whom are UP residents. And they come from many different backgrounds, including representatives from local government, um, tribes, utilities, various industries, including mining, natural gas, construction and transportation, also renewable energy based businesses, academics and the Public Service Commission. So really a, a diverse group of folks um, on the task force. And the idea was for the task force to operate for two years, which it did, and they met monthly in public meetings. And the task force was given two charges um, and about one year to tackle each charge. So the first charge was focused on propane supply, as you mentioned, and the task force released a report in April of 2022 in response to that charge. Um, and some of the main recommendations that they that, that came out of that. So one of the first things that the task force did um, was to uh, really try to get a handle around uh, propane use and how many users there were, where they lived, um, what percentage of households were using propane, all of those things. Um, and, you know, one of the things that came out of that is, as I mentioned before, natural gas supply is limited. So natural gas is typically the cheapest way um, to, to heat your home, for instance, um, but it's, it's not available across much of the UP. And so we have a lot of residents who are heating with propane, um, but also burning wood, um, about 10% um, use wood across the UP, and also about 10% heat with electricity, um, which is really high cost in much of the UP. Um, so there are a lot of different ways that people get their heating. Um, one of the things that the task force found with regards to propane is that across the UP, um, they estimated about 19% of households use propane. And that varies from county to county. Um, so in, in some counties, some of the highest usage counties are like Keweenaw County, um, where about 33% use propane. Keweenaw County is at the very tip of the Keweenaw Peninsula. It's got about maybe 2,500 people. So it's a, it's a very, it's probably the most remote and rural county even in the UP. Um, but several others where, you know, 20-ish, 20 to 25% um, of households are using propane for heat. Um, and then in some other places, it's less places that are a little bit more urban where you have more natural gas access, like Houghton County, for instance, um, it's only about 14%. Um, so we see some variation there. Um, out of that, that first set of recommendations that the task force came up with, like what should we do? Um, their recommendations were really focused on incentivizing propane storage in order to better manage potential disruptions um, and to increase affordability by buying when prices are low. Um, so the task force was not exactly told to focus on line five at all, but instead um, to focus on potential disruptions to propane supply. And some of that would be related to, well, what if we close line five? But, but other of that is that um, there could be other disruptions to propane supply, some of which we had seen in recent years um, related to weather events, related to a fire event. Um, 
And so what if, what if we had a leak in line five, for instance, it's going to have to be shut off. So there are a lot of things that could cause propane disruption. So incentivizing that storage is one of the ways to deal with a disruption. Um, they also recommended considering um, expanding rail service that would facilitate propane delivery by rail. Um, and they recommended monitoring market conditions um, to and, and really plan for steps to take when we see warning signs in the market um, for how we can uh, adjust to that. And then they really focused a lot of the recommendations on reviewing and revising assistance programs to ensure that they're working for low-income residents and doing so efficiently. Um, this included things like expanding weatherization assistance to reduce energy waste. And also, um, you know, looking to right now, a lot of our assistance um, helps people pay their bills. Um, and trying to convert some of that assistance more towards the weatherization side so that it's, it's, it's a longer term fix, right, for the same money. If we can reduce um, some of that energy waste associated with the inefficient homes and improve people's housing situation, then they don't have as high a bills um, to pay in the end. They can makes it more affordable for people. Um, so shifting some of that uh, assistance into those more like uh, energy efficiency kind of measures. Mm -hmm. So they didn't really have a single takeaway from that propane report that answered the question that a lot of people had about will will the pro, will the UP freeze if line five gets shut down? That was sort of the, the, the big question that I think people wanted to know. But I think if you read the report, you understood that there are a variety of of solutions and opportunities um, for the Upper Peninsula, and that probably no, the UP would not freeze if if that pipeline were to go down. But they there are some things that would need to happen. Would that be your assessment? Um, yeah, I would say that. I mean, it's uh, you know, like you said, um, the, I I would say that there wasn't any single kind of very conclusive conclusive. Um, recommendation that came out of that report um, with regards to line five. Um, but I think what it did was really bring to light all of the complications and the issues that um, come together to create like a complex situation that we really need to think about when planning for how people are going to get their access to heat. Mm -hmm. And then that second phase, you know, really was the one that um, maybe I've been more interested in because it was more the kind of um, more electric related issues, which I've worked more on myself. And the, the second charge, that second year of the task force, um, they were to the task force was charged to focus on um, electricity, natural gas and planning for meeting future energy needs. Um, and out of that, the task force recommended, um, you know, there were several recommendations. Um, I can't remember, maybe 14 or 15, maybe even more. But I like to kind of group them together into some bigger ideas. Um, one of the big ideas that came out of that is that we need to work together better across the UP. So they recommended a peninsula-wide planning effort. Um, and that goes back to the idea that the, we, you know, we have all of these different utilities who currently 
work together in some ways, but there's no collaborative planning and they're not planning um, collaboratively with local government oftentimes either or our local planning, um, planning and development regions. Um, and so when you really think about it, there's not one unit that brings together all of the counties even in the UP to work together on planning. Um, and the electric system's not connected to the lower peninsula, but rather it's connected to Wisconsin. And so when we think about like statewide issues, um, that doesn't exactly come into play in the UP as much, like in many ways, the electric, electric system being one of them, but in many other ways too, we're actually, more connected to Wisconsin, you know, um, especially from the Western side, um, our, you know, the closest city is Green Bay, um, the closest metropolitan area, I should say, um, for, for most residents in the UP. So, um, you know, it's, we feel pretty separate from downstate Michigan sometimes, but I think there are some real opportunities for working together across the UP on planning efforts. And that was one of the things that came out of the task force. Another thing was to really um, start to lean into some of the economic development opportunities associated with energy. So um, thinking about electric vehicles and how we can expand charging station access um, for that. And um, broadband being a really important issue across the UP. Um, we saw that, um, especially getting attention with everyone working remotely and going to school remotely over the last couple of years. But um, broadband has long been an economic development issue in the UP, um, and we need better service. Um, and that's going to be an important part of meeting our energy needs, but also potentially increasing demand for energy in some ways or shifting demand from some more toward uh, certain electric appliances. There are also opportunities for workforce development that they made recommendations about in thinking about energy transition and like the, the energy of the future and how we can get our workforce um, in shape for that so that they can take advantage of some of the economic opportunities associated with that. Um, and it's really kind of interesting. They point out how electricity is a growth industry I'm looking forward, thinking about some of these shifts toward electric vehicles and, you know, even more reliance on um, the Internet and computers. Um, but at the same time, we've been seeing reduced demand for electricity um, since about 2008. And some of that across the UP and some of that has to do with, um, you know, mines closing, um, mm -hmm. other industry closing. Uh, and also people getting more efficient, which is ultimately a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, so it's but but realizing that that decline that we've been seeing over the last several years is is probably not a forever decline. Instead, there are opportunities mm -hmm. for turning that decline into growth industry. But we need to do that smartly. Yeah. Um, another big focus area for the task force was affordability. Um, really recommending that those residential rates be watched really closely um, and increases in residential rates be taken really seriously and, and um, limited. Um, and then also working again with low income assistance programs, tweaking them to reach more people, um, kind of similar recommendations to what I talked about before regarding propane, but also expanded to think about um, electricity and natural gas. 
Um, and then energy efficiency. Um, there's a big focus on energy efficiency in these recommendations, both to kind of maintain and increase energy waste reduction efforts, um, but also to think about specific UP loan and grant funds um, to work on things like on-bill financing for um, efficiency improvements for customers um, and to think about electrification of buildings, um, creating a heating rate um, so that uh, we can use these really uh, more efficient electric heat pumps um, for heating. Um, and we can do that using electricity from renewable sources even sometimes, but um, needing some incentive and for both commercial and residential users um, to be able to make those transitions. Um, and then really thinking seriously about where we're gonna locate energy infrastructure and recommending um, opportunities to plan for that. Um, should we put it you know, on people's houses and expand programs like net metering? Or should we think about um, community centers or institutions like schools, for instance, or really thinking about brownfields um, and the potential for locating energy infrastructure um, on brown fields or landfills and um, thinking really seriously about what communities want and how communities can plan for energy infrastructure um, and, and how we can best do that. So some re thinking about recommending putting some resources toward that kind of planning facilitation mm -hmm. that we often lack in the UP. We don't have a lot of those resources. Right. I, I, you know, you said that near the, at the top of this. Um, I was really struck by, I think downstate, we tend to think of the Upper Peninsula as a unit, as a place where there must be some governance of the UP. And there's, in fact, not. There are 13 counties, three planning regions, and a whole bunch of cities. And they, just like anywhere downstate, they, they don't necessarily have to or do work together. So for issues like this, like if we're going to make, deal with an energy transition, um, that planning piece and, and thinking of the governance structure is really important. It felt like there was um, some strong recommendations from the governor's office, but they do need to be in, embraced by, by people in the UP. And I, I wonder if you have a sense of whether there's kind of a strong interest in following up on the, on the governor's task force coming from UP residents and government officials, or is it kind of dropping away? You know, I, I don't fully know the answer to that question. I don't get the sense that a lot of people are paying attention to it right now. I mean, um, you know, it's just, in some ways, it's kind of unfortunate that this happened at the same time as COVID. Um, I mean, there were some benefits associated with that in that the meetings were all, um, you know, recorded. You could join online. It was really easy to do that for folks. Um, and so I think maybe there was some increased participation that way, but, but the bigger factor, I think, is that energy just um, got put on the back burner um, over the last couple of years because we've been, like everyone, dealing with more immediate demands. And so um, right when this came out, you know, was a time period when people are thinking about the immediate demands and, and some of the ramifications that have followed out of that, like 
you know, now we've got um, housing shortages across the country, really, um, and employment shortages and like those kinds of things are at the top of people's mind. Um, so I'm personally hopeful that uh, this will come back around. Um, there's, I think, you know, we we held, um, and I know you wanted to talk some about the UP Clean Energy Conference series um, that we've worked on together over the last several months. And through that, we saw so much um, interest and engagement. And I think that is really, I mean, I've seen that over the last decade, you know, a lot of interest and growing interest in energy issues across the UP coming from a lot of different directions. So I think that background level of interest is there. Um, whether it gets translated into legislative change, like in local government entities really picking up on some of this stuff and pushing for it, um, I'm not sure. I I think we see more of that happening at the local level than we do with our state representatives, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of our local um, cities, for instance, even small villages um, and townships are really thinking about and planning for energy issues. Um, that's the scale at which they're having to deal with it, sometimes not even by choice, um, but sometimes because they see the issues that our residents are facing um, and are working to, to do stuff about it. And sometimes because they, they want to reduce their bills, you know, their own um, energy waste and do a better job with that. And they see opportunities for that. Um, with our state representatives, I'm not sure. I see that a little bit less. Um, but, you know, I think some of the recommendations that the task force made are um, something that almost anybody could get behind. I mean, these came out of um, a pretty broad and diverse and mostly UP resident task force that when they sat down together for two years and really looked at all the issues, these are the things that they could all agree on that we should move forward with. Yeah. Well, and, and you mentioned the UP Clean Energy Conference that you and I worked on um, together with a very broad group of, of stakeholders from across the UP. And it was encouraging to see the amount of in interest participation in that conference, which we intentionally did really to dovetail with the governor's task force to create a opportunity for people in the UP to follow along and to be kind of engaging in some of the issues that were being talked about in these other meetings that not everybody was showing up at the at the task force meetings, but we were getting really nice numbers, 300 plus people um, attending these clean energy conference series. So um, I really enjoyed it. I do think it might be something that that would be useful to, to continue. Um, I wonder if you can just share any of your thoughts about the effectiveness or, you know, you became kind of the face of the Clean Energy Conference, which I really appreciated. Um, what were your takeaways from that conference? Well, I agree with you that I was really um, just glad to see the level of interest and the diversity of folks that, that joined um, and really engaged um, that knew a lot about a lot of different energy issues and asked a lot of smart questions. We were able to have some really good conversation. And I think that... Um, the recordings and the webinar series itself um, serve as a real resource for people across the UP. One of the goals that I had for doing that is that we could start to connect people like we talked about before. You know, we have so many different 
organizations and the UP is a big place really. And people aren't talking to one another across it. Um, and so we tried to create some space for some of that network building or just at least helping people understand who all's out there and what are they working on and what are some of the resources available. I think we accomplished some of that. Um, and I, I guess I ultimately, I, I think it's indicative that there is uh, a large level of interest in our energy issues. I think the next step is really how do we um, capture that interest and build on it to actually um, address some of the issues that we're facing. Um, how do we actually make change? So turning some of those recommendations into reality, um, but I think that we may need to do it um, and, and hopefully we'll get some, some help from state initiatives. But I think that the place to start is probably with some of the local initiatives. Um, and if we're able to, engender um, better conversations with the utilities as well. And I know a lot of the local municipal utilities are doing a lot of this work already. Um, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity um, for them to continue that kind of work and hopefully increasing support for them to do so and resources available. Yeah. So as we talk um, before we wrap, I really want to also talk about some of the work that you're doing with Michigan Tech and the project that we're working on together, which is the Michigan Community and Anishinaabe Renewable Energy Sovereignty Project, or known as MyCares. Um, and Michigan Tech is leading on that. Groundwork Center has been a, a community partner with Michigan State and many other groups. Um, it's really quite a, a remarkable initiative. It's funded by the National Science Foundation Wondering if you can kind of tell folks a little bit about what this MyCares initiative is working on and what we can expect to learn from it. Yeah, um, so this project, um, it's, it's a big collaborative project um, that includes universities as well as community organizations and tribal partners. And our goal is really to better understand um, the risks and the barriers and the opportunities associated with renewable energy, transition toward renewable energy um, across Michigan, rural communities and indigenous communities in particular. Um, and, and the idea is that we are trying to learn from some case communities that we're working really closely with um, so that other communities can learn from, so we can kind of create some best practices and some common hiccups and better understand, um, you know, some of the challenges so that we can put it out there for other communities to be able to learn from and move forward from. Um, you know, one of the things that we've been doing so far, we did create a nice website, I think, that um, has several resources about renewable energy, energy efficiency, and community planning. Um, that's publicly available that folks can use. Um, at, you can access it at mycares.net. So M-I-C-A-R-E-S.net. Um, and that's a place you can find some resources. One of the things we're trying to do um, is to really incorporate indigenous ways of knowing with um, other ways of knowing and really community 
focused um, values um, to understand what are some of the opportunities um, for transition um, and what are some of the things that are holding communities back from being able to transition in ways that they want to do or to have control over it themselves. And that's where the sovereignty part of this comes in. Sovereignty is a word that's often used. Um, we talk about tribal sovereignty um, and tribes are sovereign nations that have the legitimate authority to self-govern. Um, but we think of sovereignty more broadly in this project as well, that all communities should have some sovereignty in order to decide how they want to manage their energy infrastructure. Um, so um, we created a, a, a GIS-based mapping tool um, that we're adding to um, and refining all the time. It's, it's a very pretty early stage right now but um, you can link to it from that website. We call it um, the Community Map Maker. Um, and it's an interactive mapping tool where, you know, you can just look at um, where current um, wind, solar, biomass kind of installations are found across the state, but you can also look at energy infrastructure, like where the power lines are, where the substations are, and you can couple that with other kinds of environmental data, like wetlands, for instance, um, and demographic data. So looking at where people live, where housing units are, and how that's changing over time. Um, and just, we're trying to provide some of the different layers and information that communities can use to think about how to plan for their energy infrastructure, for how their energy demand is changing, where they might want to site renewable energy, or what kind of programs they might want to do. Um, and so that's something we're working on and building all the time. Um, we've got some more specific mapping projects with some of our partner communities that are designed to more specifically meet their needs that they're actively working on and planning for energy transition. Um, so yeah, it's an exciting project that I've been having a lot of fun with and it's been great to partner with Groundworks on that initiative. It's, what's been fascinating to me about that, that initiative of all is just the multidisciplinary, intentional multidisciplinary um, group that's being brought together, the very technical academic, you know, in, in the energy side with some of the sociologists and folks working with, with the tribal nations. It's been really interesting to see those groups of people coming together and thinking about this renewable energy transition that we know is coming and thinking about how that will be applied and play out in rural communities. It's, um, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of it. It's, a, it's great for groundwork. It's great for Michigan to really learn learn about this. I think it's been a, a great initiative. Yeah, I agree. It's been really fun to work on. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, really that, that sovereignty aspect of it for me is where it really hits home because I think that, um, you know, so many people are interested in having more control over energy in their lives. And that's what it comes down to for me is like, where does your energy come from? How are you using energy from what sources and why and how and how can we reshape that? Um, and then producing energy as well. And how can you do some of that yourself and have control over that? And sometimes all of that, um, you know, 
we we run into some barriers, maybe especially with our current energy infrastructure and our current policies and how things are currently set up. And so it leads us to think about, okay, where can we make adjustments to make sure that everyone can get their energy demands met? We can have access to the energy we need, but at the same time to do so in ways where we can have some sovereignty over it and we can do so in ways that we're limiting our climate impact. But what a fascinating place to be having this conversation is in the upper peninsula of Michigan, where, you know, we don't always, not everyone thinks about energy up there, but this has been really fascinating to uh, think about how we can apply some of the, some of these energy issues to, um, to one of Michigan's most beautiful places in the very world. So, Rochelle, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for sharing. You are clearly one of the UP's um, most knowledgeable and, and, uh, useful people to, to help on this issue. So I really appreciate your time. Well, thanks very much for having me, Jim. It's been fun. And, um, you know, there are so many people across the UP. I'm constantly impressed with, uh, with the people who are working on these issues from so many different um, places um, and entities. So, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. You too. Bye, Jim. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Speaking of Resilience podcast. You can find more episodes of the Speaking of Resilience podcast at our website, groundworkcenter.org slash podcast, miclimateaction.org slash podcast, or on all major podcast platforms. If you appreciate this content and want more of it, stay up to date by subscribing to the podcast wherever you listen in. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. This helps other listeners find the Speaking of Resilient podcast. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Groundwork Center and at MI Climate Action. Speaking of Resilience is created by the Groundwork Center for Resilient Communities and the Michigan Climate Action Network. This episode was produced by Taylor Kramer of Cold Shower Media in collaboration with Nick Loud of the Boardman Review.